2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. Paul really at this point in his letter to the Corinthians wanders right back into theology and really right into my bailiwick, right into the area that I enjoy teaching and preaching the most. Because I think I can say without much disagreement that since the founding of GCA until today, that one thing that we have really concentrated on through all these years is making the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I don't think that most people understand the things that Paul is saying because you see a general disagreement theologically with Pauline theology in most churches, even though they profess to believe Pauline theology. There is a tremendous amount of bad theology out there. And I have uh, kind of lumped them into two categories, category one and category B, because I've never been good at categorizing. And really, the two big categories of bad theology are the people who make stuff up, that's one group, and then creeping legalism, that's the other group. And you find that pervasively through most of the churches in the Western world. Let's talk first about making stuff up. Now, even among our Reformed brethren... There are folk who will say things that just simply are not biblical. And what I mean by that is you won't see it propounded by any of the biblical authors. You won't find these theories stated anywhere in the Bible, and yet they're very common. Uh, it's easy to look at, like, Catholic Mariology and say, okay, that's making stuff up. I can't find that anywhere in the Bible. I don't see anywhere where any of the apostles ever taught that Mary was co-redemptrix or co-mediatrix. And so, okay, that's making stuff up. But that's kind of easy. If the Mormons say, come and join us, and someday after you die, you get your own planet, that you're going to be the God over that planet. Okay, that's making stuff up. But that's, that's easy. This week, I tried to avoid getting into a debate on Facebook because I just don't like Facebook debates. I don't like debating people in little calm boxes. 
And most people who are debating on Facebook aren't really debating point by point with each other. They're usually just talking past each other. It's like two people standing nose to nose yelling at each other. So I try not to get involved in those, but there was a fellow who said that he expected God to keep his promises to Israel and that he expected God to keep every promise he ever made. Okay, that seems like a good, solid statement. And I was fine with it. I passed by it. Oh, look, this fellow agrees with us. He expects God to keep every promise God's ever made. If God doesn't keep his promises, then we have no way of having real confidence and faith in God because he doesn't keep his word. So, okay, I was completely with him. Well, the next comment down was somebody who said things that we're all familiar with. We've all heard it before. He said, well, the way that God is keeping his promises to Israel is within the church now, the true Israel, and therefore he is keeping his promises of a kingdom that was inaugurated at Christ on the cross, and so the kingdom is now, the kingdom promises are now, and then he listed several things that Israel had done wrong, including killing Jesus, including breaking the law. And for that reason, God had written off Israel, was done with Israel completely for all these reasons. And therefore, it is the church that is the new, spiritual, true Israel. And I sat and looked at that and wondered how many people on Facebook would realize that he's using language that nobody in the Bible uses. No New Testament author ever says true Israel or spiritual Israel or new Israel. It's just not in here. And so that person is making stuff up. And it's not as obvious as the Mariology or the Mormonism, but it's still... Bad theology because it's making stuff up. And yet it's very, very common, very, very popular theology. But it's still making stuff up. If you can't find one of the New Testament authors developing the idea and proclaiming the idea, well, then you should not be promoting the idea. Amen. You should not be saying anything that the Bible does not say. So... That's category one. But in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is going to wander into category B, which is creeping legalism. And he is yet again going to turn his attention to the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, Paul creates a radical distinction between the old and new covenant. He does not rubber stamp the Old Covenant. He does not say that the Old Covenant has been brought over into the New Covenant. He doesn't say that the New Covenant is founded on the Old Covenant. He makes a radical distinction between the two. And I don't think most churches are willing to go as far as Paul was willing to go. Because as soon as you hear somebody say, um, you have to tithe. Well, then they are going back to the old covenant and the old covenant rules and bringing them forward into the new covenant to lay those on the conscience of men and women, boys and girls. 
But that's bad theology. There are people arguing every day on the internet about whether the church should be keeping Sabbath. And then they say that the church in some way, meeting on Sunday mornings, satisfies the Old Testament rule of Sabbath keeping. When the Old Testament Sabbath was Friday night to Saturday night. So there's no way to say that Sunday morning satisfies the Sabbath. And they say that going to church on the Sabbath is somehow keeping the Sabbath. But it's not. Because the Sabbath was, and get this right, the Sabbath was a sign of a covenant made between God and Israel. And it was the sign of what we call the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, the Moses Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, the covenant that was based in the Ten Commandments, which are called specifically the words of the covenant, which are written on tablets that are called specifically the tables of the covenant, which were put into a golden box that is called the Ark of the Covenant. So how many times does that have to be said before we understand that that was part of a covenant that we're not part of? We're just not any part of it. Therefore, The law, Paul is going to argue, the law that was once written on tables of stone, the letters of the law that were against us, he is going to refer to in this chapter as the ministry of death. That's a little harsh. Have you heard any sermons lately on the ministry of death? He's not going to stop there. He's going to continue using that kind of language so that we understand the really radical distinction between do all these rules, 613 ordinances, the Ten Commandments, do all these things, and then God will accept your personal righteousness based on how well you achieved the law perfectly, continually, perpetually. Then God will accept you on that basis, which nobody ever did which God never accepted anybody on. That's the old covenant, and the radical distinction is the new covenant in which Christ has accomplished everything necessary in order to please and satisfy the righteousness of God. His righteousness is imputed to our account, and when God looks on us, he no longer expects us to keep rules, regulations, Sinai rules. He expects us to have faith in Christ, and ever since Abraham, God has been saying that faith in his word is traded for righteousness. And that's the very foundation of all Pauline theology, that righteousness comes by faith in the finished work of Christ, not by the keeping of the rules. And the keeping of the rules, the commandments, the ordinances, the keeping of the rules is no part, no part whatsoever, according to Paul, no part in the new covenant because law and works are antithetical to grace and faith. And so he argues that if you try to approach God on the basis of your personal righteousness based on your works, then it can't have anything to do with grace. Because for grace to be grace, it can't have anything to do with works. He even argues that if God were to respond to you on the basis of what you've done, your works, If God were to respond to you on that basis, he says, that's not grace, that's a debt. That's something God owes you. 
That's God paying you like a paycheck at the end of the week. You did the work, now you get paid. There's no grace in that. In fact, the only place in the entire New Testament where you find the phrase, fallen from grace, the only place you find that phrase is in the context of Paul saying, if you're trying to approach God on the basis of your works, then Christ is no help to you and you've fallen from grace. Grace and works are antithetical. And that's because the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are distinctly, dramatically different. One says, do it or I'll punish you. And the other says, believe in me because the work has been done. And in Christ, we find everything necessary for our full, complete salvation. Now, in response to the fact that we love Christ who has done all that for us, in response to that fact, we may do good works that look like the good works of the Old Testament, that look like the good works of the Old Covenant. But the difference is, and get this straight, the difference is the Old Covenant written in tables of stone says, do these things or die. Do these things or God will punish you. The new covenant says you will do these things out of gratitude and out of love and in reaction to the fact that you are saved. Legalism is doing works to be saved. New covenant works are good works we do because we've been saved. And that again is a radical distinction. So Paul is once again going to turn his attention to this idea and say that we, the church, we, the people he was writing to, we, the ministers that he was traveling with, he says, we are ministers of the new covenant. We're not ministers of the old covenant. We're not out here promoting Judaistic practices. We're not saying that you have to kill animals and go to the temple anymore. We're not saying that you have to do the 30% tithes that are prescribed in the Old Testament. We're not saying that you have to make the, the necessary trips to Jerusalem three times a year to keep the feasts. All of that, he says, was just shadows foreshadowing the coming of Christ. And now that Christ is here, he has satisfied all those shadows, and we live in the genuine freedom and the genuine love and the genuine thankfulness of being in covenant with Christ. And that's so different, so different from the old covenant that says do it or die. And yet there are people today saying, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm a Bible guy, I believe in the new covenant, and you have to fill in the blank. And usually they run back to something in the law. You have to believe in Christ and. I told somebody, uh, I've told all of you, you're somebody, so I've told you. (laughs) I've told you many times that uh, there was a preacher years ago who had been listening to me online back when we were doing our Law versus Grace series all those years ago. We were doing Law versus Grace, and he wrote to me and he said, I appreciate what you're saying and what you're doing, but 
You can't just preach grace, grace, grace the way you preach it. You got to add a little bit of law. Because if you don't, people will go crazy on you. So he believed that you came to Christ for your salvation. But then you ran to Moses for your sanctification. You ran to Moses to find out what you had to do, even though you were saved in Christ. And the difference, again, Paul's going to bring that difference up again here. The difference is, this is all just introduction. I'm just getting started here. I'm just getting warmed up. The difference is the law was written on stones external to humans. And all that the law could do is stand against you, judge you, and tell you how wrong you were. That's all the law could do. All the law could do was say, wrong, 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 wrong. Oh, you're wrong again. What the law could not do is help you. It could not bend. It could not negotiate. It could only declare you wrong. And it was written on stone, external to you. And that is why it's so important in Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8, the recitation of the new covenant. That's why it's so important that God says he's going to write his law on our inward parts. No longer on tables of stone. No longer external to us. No longer standing outside us, judging us and telling us how wrong we are. But God is going to write it within us. See, I'm a rebel at heart. Rebellion courses through my veins. And given my own way, I'd make Hitler look like a piker. I mean, I'm just... I'm a wild man at heart. And when I was being raised in the Lutheran church all those years ago, when I was a young kid, every time they said, don't do something, oh, that made me want to do it. I wasn't even thinking about it. I wasn't even thinking about jumping over the pew in front of me (laughs) until they said, don't jump over the pews. Suddenly jumping over the pews was an option. I didn't even know about it. But boy, I couldn't wait to do it. Man, did my dad spank me. Once I jumped over that pew, but you know what? I took the whipping because I jumped over the pew. I was so pleased with myself, just that rebellious nature. Don't tell me not to do something. So stretch that out to life. Christianity and the church that I grew up in said, don't do stuff. And as soon as I was old enough, I did whatever they said don't do because I'm just a rebel at heart. Why? Because they, as an external legal standard, imposed on me legal rules that they then threatened me with that if I didn't do them their way, they would punish me in some significant way. I was willing to take the punishment just to do the stuff. That's how rebellious I was. Now, the difference is that the Holy Spirit, having taken up residence in me, is now the governor on my behavior, and I most willingly do the things that the Lutherans used to try to get me to do. What's the difference? The difference is, instead of it being an external rule telling me how wrong I was, 
it's become an internal principle that guides my life and I most willingly now try to avoid the sin and rebellion that would displease the Lord that bought me. And that's a completely different mindset. And if you get the difference between that kind of legalism and that kind of willing obedience, then you get the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. You get that? Am I alone up here? No. Okay. Any other rebels in the room? Oh, okay. All right. I figured I wasn't alone. And that's true grace because God is actually regenerating us with, on his terms. Absolutely. We couldn't do it on our own. Look, I wasn't looking for him to change me. I was perfectly happy in my rebellion. I was the quintessential angry young man. Kind of like Paul on the Damascus Road. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus came and got Paul. And the same way that I was going through my life just steamrolling ahead, not caring who I had to roll over as long as I got mine. And then Jesus came. And once he took up residence in me, drew me to himself, and changed my internal thought processes and what I truly, genuinely loved, everything changed. But I didn't do it. I didn't change it. He changed it. I mentioned a few minutes ago in talking about creeping legalism that uh, there are folks even to this day who argue that the Sabbath ought to be somehow a Christian principle. And I argue that the Sabbath is the sign of the old covenant. And since we're not under the old covenant, we're not required to keep the sign of the Sabbath. Tom, look up Exodus 31 for a moment and get ready to stand up because you're going to read a big section. Uh Uh-oh, you're going to read from verse 13 to verse 19 and listen to how often God very specifically says, the Sabbath is a sign of my covenant with Israel. And that should be enough for us to get our Sabbath theology straight, especially in light of the fact that the writer of Hebrews, himself a Hebrew, writing to Hebrews, stop me when this is obvious, writes to them and says that the satisfaction of the Sabbath is in our resting from our own works and resting and trusting in Christ completely. So there is the type antitype of Sabbath keeping, not refraining from picking up sticks on Saturdays. Stand up, read it for us. Exodus 31, starting at verse 13, read to verse 19. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Wait, this is a sign between me and who? You. Who's you? Israel. Israel. Does it say this is a sign between me and the church? No. No. Keep reading. He's going to say it again. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest 
holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Hang on just a moment. Do you notice that the sign of the Sabbath, which is the rule of the covenant, includes death? Includes do it or die? Said it twice. Said it twice. There's no options here. You either do it or I kill you. Those are the only options. That's very, very different from the New Covenant. And in fact, I get frustrated by New Covenant professing churches that also try to advance the idea of Sabbath keeping because they take the idea that we should meet on Sabbath, keep Sabbath in some way, but they take the death penalty completely out of it. You don't find that in the Bible anywhere. You only find Sabbath keeping as a do it or die rule. Read the rest of it. Verse 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Wait, who? The people of Israel. The people of Israel will keep the Sabbath. It's right there. Yeah. Observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Okay, now the only reason that we went through that exercise is because it couldn't be more clear in the Bible who the covenant was established between, God and national Israel. And yet... The very fact that whenever I say modern Sabbath keeping within the church, you all nod because you can think of somebody, Seventh-day Adventist is a perfect example, but you can think even of Reformed groups that are saying that we have to, at least in some way, try to keep the Sabbath. This is what I'm referring to as creeping legalism. Any time that any church imposes on you a tithe that can only be found in the Old Covenant, you don't find it anywhere in the New Covenant. You don't find Paul writing to any Gentile churches and teaching them to tithe. Instead, he says just the opposite of it. He says to the Corinthians, every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Okay, that's the opposite of mandatory 30% tithing. And so every church that says to you, you have to tithe, is creeping legalism, taking you back to the old covenant in some significant way. This is a hard one. This is a tough one. But everybody who takes you back to the Ten Commandments and says, now you have to keep these. Whatever else you do in your life, you have to keep these. That's creeping legalism. Because if, in fact, Christ is a complete Savior... If he is a perfect savior, if he has solved our sin problem and paid our sin debt for us, then the idea that we have to go back to the commandments and keep them in order to satisfy God's righteousness is creeping legalism. So I said a half hour ago, I don't think most of us understand how radical Pauline theology is on this topic. So we're going to delve into it and see how radical it is. Chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Paul has just said that we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved 
and among those who are perishing to the one we are the aroma of death to death to the other we are an aroma from life to life and then he asked the question who is adequate for these things that as we preach this word as this word goes forward and people hear it that it is part of what is determining their eternal destiny that they are either hearing the gospel and changed by it or they're hearing it and rejecting it to one the gospel is the aroma of life unto life to other folks it's the aroma of death unto death and this is important because like I said in a few minutes he's going to refer to the law as the ministry of death so some people hear the gospel but they want to maintain, they want to cling to, they want to continue their legalism. And so for that reason, they can't hear the gospel. The gospel is too freeing for them. They, like that pastor I mentioned before, will say, no, you got to have some law. If you don't include at least some law, you're never going to get the behavior you want out of people. And I disagree with that entirely. I think if the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who gives himself the proper name, El Shaddai, I am all-powerful, if that one gets a hold of you, my little rules don't count. I can't change you the way he can change you. I can't get a hold of you the way he can get a hold of you. So I don't tell you what my rules are. I don't tell you what my standards are. I've grown up in the church. I've been in the church most of my life. And I've seen so many rules. Half the women in this place right now couldn't go into churches that don't believe that women should wear pants. You'd have to go home and put on a dress to come back. Men without ties. I know of a church in Murfreesboro right now that says men cannot wear cologne. And I've been around men before that I've thought ought to wear cologne. (laughs) Rules, 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 rules. But if God gets a hold of you, if the spirit of God resides inside you, he is the governor on your behavior. You don't need my rules. You don't need me to lord it over you and tell you what to do and visit your house and make sure you're living according to my standards. I trust that the Holy Spirit of God is powerful enough to change you, to convert you, and to keep you, and to seal you until the day of Christ's return. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. You need to know that if you were traveling in the Middle East in this period of time, you would very often, if you were a respectable person, you would carry a letter of recommendation. Because they didn't have the means of communication that we have now. No television, no telephone, no. And so if you went into a new area where you were an unknown entity, it was good for you to be able to pull out an epistle where some group of respected people, some church somewhere, had said, this is so-and-so, he's a good guy, trust him. And Paul oftentimes would write letters of recommendation four different apostles that he would send in behind him, sent ones that he would send in behind him. And so he asked the question in chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Because after all, the first two chapters have been him saying, I've loved you so much, 
and I've given myself so much for you, and I've done exactly what God has sent me to tell you, and now he stops, gets a bit of self-realization and says, what am I doing? Am I, am I trying to commend myself to you? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our epistle, our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all men. What he's saying there is, I don't need a letter of recommendation about my influence on the church in Corinth. The fact that you exist and the way that you're living and the way that you care for each other is an epistle that all men can read that prove that I've had a positive influence on you. So I don't need a letter of recommendation. You are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Think about that phrase for a moment. You are an epistle of Christ. He is saying the way that you live, the way that you care for each other, the way that you gather, the way that you worship, the way that you praise, the way that you are, in fact, acting as a church is like a letter directly from Christ saying, these are my people. We are a living testament of Christ on the planet. And as long as we're here on the planet, as long as we're here proclaiming the gospel, we are proof positive to an unbelieving world that Christ exists, that Christianity exists, and that the church is alive and well. We are manifesting that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And then he uses this very interesting phrase. This is a Hebraism that all of the, the Jews in Corinth reading would recognize. He wrote, we are not written on tablets of stone. Okay, so where are the tables of stone? What are the tables of stone? One of the most interesting aspects of the Ten Commandments written in stone, which, by the way, were written twice because they were destroyed the first time, despite what Cecil B. DeMille will have you believe, he actually destroyed the first version of the Ten Commandments, which were cut out by the hand of God, written by the hand of God, and then given to Moses. And when Moses saw that they were worshiping the calf and dancing around, he, he threw down the tablets, and the tablets broke. And he had to go back up onto Mount Sinai and tell God, uh, remember those things you gave me? I might have broke those. And so God gives him a different rule. God does not remake it. God says, you cut out tablets of stone this time. Which means, by the way, a foreshadow of Christ and of Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Old Covenant, written with the finger of God, cut out by God, was broken. That's a fact. That's a historic fact. We see that all the way through the Old Testament, that Israel constantly, continually broke the law of God. So how was it going to be kept? On tablets that are cut out with the hands of man and written on by God. So the second tablets are actually cut out by Moses and written by God. 
because the covenant that actually leads to salvation ultimately is a covenant with a God-man. Christ comes and fulfills the law that was broken the first time. Do I need to spell that out? Okay, so, so he uses this phrase, God didn't write on tablets of stone. The first writing of God that we find in the entire Bible is when God writes the Ten Commandments on stone. So the writing on stone is a very, very significant phrase. And in a moment, Paul's going to identify it. He's going to tell us exactly what tables of stone he's talking about. But notice what he's doing. He's contrasting the spirit of the living God with rules written on tables of stone. The rules written on tables of stone, the old covenant external to you, those couldn't satisfy God. But now you are an epistle of Christ written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God living within you, operating inside you. The opposite of that is words written on stone. Being manifested that you are a letter, an epistle of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. There's that theology that I've been talking this morning. The old covenant was written on tables of stone and was always external to the people. So external, in fact, that the tablets of stone, the second ones, had to be put in the Ark of the Covenant. And then the Ark of the Covenant had to be put inside a tent, inside a tent. It was called the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. So inside a golden box, that's where the Ten Commandments are kept. And only the high priest can enter before that Ark of the Covenant and only once a year and only with the right clothes and only with sacrificial blood. And he can only do it when all the people of Israel are standing away from the Ark of the Covenant. They're outside the place where the worship's going on. They're outside the place where Moses and the high priest meet with God. Do you get the picture? God is here. Get away. God is here. Stand back. When God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, he said, keep the people away. Build a fence so they don't come near. Even if a dog gets near, drive him through with a dart. Don't let anybody come up here because I'm God and I'm holy and they're not. And if they get near me, I'll kill them. Okay, so now let's contrast. Paul says, come boldly to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. Okay, that's distinctly different. That's dramatically different from stay away to come close. Why? Because... Once upon a time, God's rules, God's thoughts, God's words were written on tablets of stone, but now they're written on the tablets of the human heart. Verse 4, in such confidence we have through Christ toward God. The confidence that, as I spoke a few minutes ago, that the Holy Spirit is sufficient 
to change these people, to guide these people, to bring these people along in the things of Christ. Verse 5, not that we are adequate within ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So just like he said, who's adequate for these things? Who's adequate to handle the gospel? The word that brings life to some and brings death to others. Who's adequate for this? He now says, there's no adequacy in me. I'm just a human. I'm just a worm. I'm dying just like everybody else. There's nothing within me that is good enough for the job that God has chosen for me to do. But the adequacy, he says, is God. So therefore, the change has to be from God. Therefore, the conviction has to be from God. Therefore, the belief and the faith in his son has to be from God. It can't be because somebody talked you into it. I'm a pretty persuasive guy. And I can probably talk you into a good many things. But I can't talk you into enduring faith in Christ and his finished work. I can't do that. And by the way, I pointed it out before, if I could talk you into it, some other equally persuasive person can talk you out of it. So you don't want me to talk you into it. You want God to convict you of it. You want the spirit of Christ to convict you of the reality of his operation in your life. You don't need me to do it. All I do is tell the truth. All I do is read the Bible to you. And if Christ has chosen you since before the foundation of the world, there's simply no chance that he's not going to get you. He's going to get you. And that's why you're all sitting here when you could be home in bed. I could be home in bed. I like that idea. I should be home in bed. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is God, who also made us adequate as diakonos is the Greek word there. It's the word from which we get deacon. It it means a minister. We are ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter. Now I'm going to show you in just a moment that when he refers to the letter, he's referring very specifically to to the law. He's talking about the letters engraved in stone. It's the word grammar, believe it or not. G-R-A-M-M-A in English letters. It does not mean your maternal grandparent. It's the word from which we get grammar, grammatical. All those words come from the Greek word grammar. Translated letters here. And so Paul is talking about letters written in stone, standing as an external rule. He says, we're not ministers of that. We're not servants of that. We are ministers and servants of the new covenant. And having introduced the new covenant, he's now going to describe the radical difference between the old and new covenant. Verse 6. We are also made adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit. For the letter, the law, for the letter kills. 
but the Spirit gives life. What did Tom read a little while ago? Keep my Sabbath or die, because that's the way the law always worked. Do what I tell you or die. As soon as God gave the law to Israel, it included things like, if you don't do it, I'm going to bring your enemies down on you. There's going to be bloodshed and there's going to be killing and murder. And uh, I'm going to bring the wild animals down on you. And I'm going to bring plagues on you. And I'm going to make you starve. And there's going to be famines. And I'm going to do all of that to you if you don't keep my law. So there were no options there. Keep my law or die. Paul contrasts that with the new covenant of the spirit that gives life. Whereas the old covenant took life, the new covenant gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more glorious? Okay, now there's just a whole bunch of stuff wrapped up in there. I plan to get to all of it. We're going to have to go back and read in Exodus about Moses and his face shining and the fading glory. We probably won't get to that till next week, but this morning I just want to concentrate on the differences between the old and the new covenant because he has just called the old covenant the ministry of death. And the reason that I pointed out the word diakonos was because it's the same word. He says, we're the ministers of the new covenant. We're not part of the ministry of death. And I think when you say it, you have to yell it that way. I think it's right in the text that you can't just say, and the ministry of death. (laughs) It's the ministry of death. (laughs) Understand what the law does. The law kills. The law does not make alive. Turn to the book of Romans for a minute. Let's start in Romans 4. Let's see some more Pauline theology along these lines. Turn to the book of Romans, Romans 4. Oh, we'll just look at a couple quick verses and then we're going to look at a longer section. Romans 4.15. Read that for us, Micah. What does Romans 4.15 say? For the law brings about wrath. Stand up, read slowly, and emphasize the word. The law brings about what? For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. So where there was no law, there couldn't be any violation of the law. So God introduced the law. For what reason? To make sin all the more obvious, the same way that I said I didn't know about jumping over pews until it was mentioned. The same thing, Paul's going to argue, I didn't know I was coveting, and then the law said, don't covet. And I went, oh, coveting. Yeah, that's what I'm into. (laughs) I didn't know that. And what does the law bring about? Wrath. The wrath of God. The ministry of death brings wrath. I'm trying to tattoo that to your brain. I'm trying to make you think the way the Bible says it. The Bible says the old covenant, the covenant of law, brings about death. If you knew 
that I had made you a cake for Gladys's birthday. Let's say I had made a cake. And, and it's a great looking cake, man. It's chocolate, it's icing, it's a great cake. And I've put all kinds of doodads and designs on the top. This is a great cake. And just before you bite into it, I say, oh, in the ingredients, I included just two drops of arsenic. Not a lot, but just two drops of arsenic. Do you still want that cake? That, what flavor is it? <laughs> I think I said chocolate, so yeah. See, that's the rebel in you that immediately goes, I could probably afford a little arsenic as long as there's cake. Now, of course, you, you would deny that cake. You would say there's another cake. I can find another cake. I don't want the cake with a little bit of arsenic in it. So then why do you want a religion that has a little bit of the ministry of death in it? Why do you want a Christianity that plays around the borders of the thing that will kill you? Why? Why would you want to participate? And, and James writes that where the law is concerned, missing it in any one point makes you guilty of the whole thing. Whole thing. So now we're Sabbath keeping and now we're tithing and now we're keeping other old covenant rules. And suddenly one Sunday... You break the Sabbath. What about it? Now, of course, these days they'll go, oh, well, you know, no big deal. But according to the Bible, you're a dead man. Because not only did you break the Sabbath, you broke the whole law. And having broken the whole law, you deserve nothing else except what Romans says here, God's wrath. Why would you play with that? Why would you toy around with that? I went one time years and years ago. I was just a little kid. And we went to a, a canyon in Colorado. And, uh, and I, rebel that I was, even at my young age, I wanted to get as close to the edge as I possibly could. I wanted to look over the edge at how far down it was to the river down below. My mother panicked. She kept grabbing me and pulling me back. No, don't get to the edge. Don't get to the edge. I wanted to play around with the edge where the death hung out. Why do people do that with their ever-living, never-dying soul? Why do people do that with their religion where they say, you know, I could probably afford a little legalism. Like that pastor again. You got to have a little law in there or people are going to go crazy on you. But if you have the Holy Spirit of God residing within you, governing your behavior, you don't need anything of the law. I don't have to impose tithe on you because if the Spirit of God is inside you, you will do what Paul said and give generously out of your heart. We haven't taught tithing here in 15 and a half years. I've never taught tithing in my life except that Tom and I were in a church out in Los Angeles that taught 30% tithing fastidiously plus first fruits. Plus alabaster box. Plus 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 plus, 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 plus. Give, 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 give. And you know what? Per capita giving at GCA is much higher than that church out there. Because as much as you pound on people and say, give, 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 or God will kill you. Give, or God will get you. Don't you want him to destroy the devourer for your sake? 
You robbed God. Wherein have you robbed God? In your tithes and offerings. That's quoting Malachi. As much as they imposed that on me, because I'm a rebel, the more it made me want to not do it. But now? Now, giving is just part of my life. Giving to anyone and everyone that has a need. Generosity is just a part of my life. Why? Because I've been changed internally by the Spirit. Do you see the difference? I don't have to say, keep the Sabbath and keep it holy and make sure from Friday night to Saturday night you don't do any work and for heaven's sake, don't pick up sticks and don't make a fire and don't eat an egg if the chicken worked. And, and They used to argue about that. There were actually tremendous arguments among the, the rabbis about whether you can eat an egg late on the Sabbath. None of that matters. None of that matters. All that matters is our complete sufficiency in Christ. Go to Romans 5 for a moment. Romans 5, starting at verse 18. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, okay, Adam fell and everybody was made sinful as a result, even so through the obedience of one, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so where does righteousness come from? Through Christ. Not through the keeping of the law, but through faith in Christ. Verse 20, and the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where does righteousness and eternal life come from? Jesus Christ our Lord. Why did the law come? Paul just said so that sin would be more obviously sinful. That's the point. That's why. The law existed so that Israel would be guilty. The law exists so that all of mankind before God stands guilty. There's nobody who can achieve their own individual personal righteousness. But righteousness comes through faith in Christ as a matter of grace. Turn to Romans 7. I'm just going to start at verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. He's writing to the Roman Jews. There's both Jew and Gentile in Rome. There were two different churches that met in two different places, the Jewish church and the Gentile church. And when he wrote to Rome, he wrote a letter that bounced back and forth freely between those two groups. At this point, he's writing to the Jews, those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, the reason Paul brings that up is to say we're the same way. That we were once married, those who know the law, were once married to the law. But that in Christ, the law died. Therefore, they are now free to remarry Christ. 
That's his whole point. Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. See the language? What was the purpose of the law? The law aroused our sinful passions. That's what the law did. You didn't know how wrong you were. It's just like if you're driving down the road. You're, just, you're speeding down the road. But you haven't seen a speeding sign. You don't know what the speed is. And you don't know it's 40, but you're doing 45. You're creeping up on 50. You're doing 80. You're, you're, just, you're going down the road, and you're not keeping the law because you don't know what the law is at that moment until the cop stops you and says, the speed limit here is 40. Now, you're guilty as the day is long. You just didn't know you were guilty. Until you understood the law, and now that has inflamed those sinful passions that recognize, I'm wrong, I'm wrong again, I'm doing it again, and the minute the cop leaves, you're doing 45, 50, 80 again, but you didn't know before that you were speeding, now you know and you do it anyway, because we're just rebels, especially behind the wheel. And behind keyboards on a computer. (laughs) While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law. But now we have been released from the law. Amen. Anybody got that? You got that right? Now we're released from the law. The next time somebody says, you got a tie. Next time somebody brings up, you got a Sabbath. You got Next time somebody brings up something that's not in the Bible. Next time somebody gets legalistic on you. Oh, you're wearing pants. You're supposed to be wearing a dress. <laughs> by what law? Where's that written? And by the way, even if you can find it in the law, I'm released from the law. But now we are released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. So that we serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness, look at the phrase, of the letter. There's that word grandma again. So now we know that when he's referring to letter, he's talking about the law. He's talking about letters written on stone. What shall we say then? Verse 7, what are we going to say then? Is the law sin? No, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting, except that the law said you shall not covet. But sin, look at the next phrase, taking opportunity through the commandment. Okay, so what does sin do? Sin, in order to make you more sinful, takes opportunity of the commandment that says don't, and then entices you to do it anyway taking advantage of you by the fact that the rule exists. You see how this all works? But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of coveting, of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. 
Do you get that? Apart from the law, sin is dead. Are we apart from the law? Do we have a perfect Savior? Do we have a Savior who died for all our sinfulness? Do we have a Savior who paid our sin debt and made it okay between us and God? Then sin's not the big issue anymore. Faith in Christ is. And he put his Holy Spirit within us. Again, I don't think people understand the radical nature of the things that Paul has said. He said that when Christ returns, he's coming back without regard to sin. Why? Because he satisfied the sin thing the first time he was here. Now we are free in Christ to worship God, to live our lives toward God. Yes, we're still going to stumble in sin, but those sins are paid for. He has, by his grace, radically freed us, not only from sin, death, and the grave, but from the law that would condemn us. Am I raving yet? Because I'm getting close. We're nearly done. Sort of. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, when the law came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, that's right, if you kept the commandments, if you did all 613 rules, if you kept them perfectly, perpetually your whole life, you could live by them. Nobody did it save Christ. So I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. How many times now has Paul said the law brings death? It's all the law does. The law brings death. The commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. The problem's us. We can't do it. It's good. It's fine. The problem's sin within us. Therefore, did that which was good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. That's the reason for the law. It's not to improve your behavior. It's not to make you righteous before God. It's not to give you good standing in the court of heaven. It's for the purpose of killing you. Showing you that you are a sinner. Showing you that you are a sinner and making sin all the more sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh. I'm sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. How many people can testify to this? For I am not practicing what I would like to do. For I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, then I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it. It's the sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
For the wishing is present with me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find therefore a principle that evil is present with me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God after the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? It's Paul talking about the law. Can't do you any good. It's impossible. It's why I don't drive you back there. It can't do you any good. It can only kill you. Look at the next two verses. Thanks be to God. Oh, there's some relief. (laughs) That's like a cool drink in the desert. Okay, here we go. Now it all, it's okay again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. So chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now because of Christ, because of his death, because of his resurrection, because of his finished perfect work, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. What have we been seeing all along? condemnation, death. The law can only hurt you. Death, 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 ministry of death. That's all we've been seeing. And then if you're in Christ, no condemnation. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. So do you need to run to the law to perfect yourself so that you get no condemnation? No. So do you have to keep track of all the good things you do and the bad things and weigh them out and hope that your good outweighs your bad so that there's no condemnation? No. No. Where is there no condemnation? For those that are in Christ Jesus. Those that have been born again. Yeah. God has to have caused the rebirth. Has to. Has to be his spirit placed into your body. I like how often you've used the word has to. Because it has to be. It has to be. It can't come from you. By his will. Right. And so, knowing all that, that that's how it has to be, well then, what is the purpose of all the preachers standing behind pulpits, thundering down from Sinai, telling you that you got to do better? Does that get you anything? Does that help you at all? Years ago, I was at the conference up in Lexington, and I heard Brian Chapel. I just thought it was so incredibly insightful that he said, you know, when I was a young preacher, people would come to me for marriage counseling. He said, I didn't know anything. I hadn't been married long enough to understand the ins and outs of marriage, but I would counsel them. And you know what I would tell them? Do better. He said, that's all I got for you. In the end... It was some pretty up version of do better. He said, and then one day I realized if they could do better, they would. They came to me as a last resort because they can't do any better. 
And that's how we all are. We can't do any better than we're doing. This is how we are. And yet by grace, 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 by God's loving kindness, by his mercy, he has chosen us and placed us in Christ. And he, the perfect savior, has completely paid the sin debt and the rebellion debt that we carry around with us so that we will stand before God and have Christ's righteousness imputed to our account in exchange for our faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm just here to tell you, even if that was all I said to you this morning, that's the best thing you've ever heard in your stupid little life. Amen. It's the best thing you've ever heard. That the God who has that kind of power and authority fixed your problem with him. You've never heard anything better than that. Gospel. That's just gospel. Okay, so next week... We'll pick up again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll look at the Moses thing, and we'll see yet again that Paul argues that the reason that the glory in Moses' face was fading was because the law was fading. It was getting ready to go away because there was a greater glory of the new covenant about to supersede it. And we'll get into all that next week. I shudder to ask. Questions? There shouldn't be too many. Yes, George? You said toward the beginning that um, a lot, some of our brethren in the even reform movement, you know, brothers and sisters, resort to making things up. And you gave two obvious examples, not reform people, but Mormonism and Marianism within Catholicism. I wonder if you could give us two or three examples of the maybe smaller things or not so obvious things that the reform uh, brethren resort to making up. I did provide one example already, which is the idea that the church is Israel. And that Israel's the church. And that somehow God, who has made thousands of years of promises to a specific people, is now satisfying them within the church. And they use the phrase true Israel. And I said that specifically because you don't find the phrase true Israel anywhere in the Bible. Then they say spiritual Israel. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. So I think that was a pretty obvious example of people getting too theologically involved with their own creativity. And they start genuinely making things up. And if you're saying things and promoting things that can't be found in the Bible, then what is that except making things up? You know? Make sense? That's good. Yes, ma'am. What laws or external rules do you see that are being imposed upon people? Well, that's why I was saying Sabbath keeping and tithing are the two most obvious. But not in reform. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. See, a very big swath of the Reformed community is covenantal. That's why we here at GCA don't really adhere to a hermeneutic like that, just whatever the Bible says. Covenantalism at its very core says that Old Testament Israel and New Testament church, you can mix and match those so that you end up saying things like, here's another made up thing, New Testament baptism is the type antitype of Old Testament circumcision. Okay, well, the Bible never says that anywhere. In fact, the Bible says that the type antitype of circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. That's taken care of. Plus, if you're baptizing 
in keeping with circumcision, why are you baptizing girls? So, so you've got all these problems with it because it's a made-up thing. It's not biblical. Make sense? So within Reformed circles, yes, that covenantalism creates a creeping legalism. And that's why we're trying to avoid that and, and get in touch with what Paul really is saying. Because he's not advancing a, a system. He's advancing the gospel. Make sense? Yes, yes sir. Yeah, I thought about in response to what these two just said, too, their book of uh, church order. Right. I mean, it's a big book of law that you will not find in the Bible. And, and when, when it comes to contentions in the church, it is that's their go-to place. When you become a member of the Presbyterian Church, you agree to be governed by those things. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Which are extra-biblical. Right, exactly. Yeah, by their very nature. Or are you familiar with the regulative principle? This goes all the way back again to the Reformation. Uh, Zwingli, very big into the regulative principle, and he argued that anything that's not specifically advocated in the Bible should not be part of church worship. And then Luther took the position that anything that's not specifically prohibited in the Bible is allowable in worship. Okay, so the regulative principle runs rampant in the Presbyterian Church. So, yes, among our Reformed brethren, there is a whole lot of creeping legalism. Yeah. It's pretty amazing what, over the last 2,000 years, human beings have managed to impose on the Bible. The Bible says what it says, and then we come along and go, I can fix that. I can improve on that. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.